continue our journey through 2 Kings together. We've been going back and forth between the northern and southern kingdom of Israel at this time of the divided nation. As we come to chapter 14, we now shift the lens back into the southern kingdom uh, of Judah at this time. It tells us in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 14 that it was in the second year of Joash the son of Jehoaz, king of Israel in the north at this time, that then Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. So a rather extensive reign, almost three decades. Uh, This young man, starting at 25 years old, spent the next three decades on the throne there in the southern kingdom. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And we'll see that Amaziah, though he, as all these kings did, have their weak spots. No man is perfect, and the best of men are always men at best. But Amaziah was thankfully one of the uh, good uh, kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. They had some good kings, some bad kings, some that sought the Lord and walked in the ways of God, others that did not. But Amaziah, we're told, verse 3, uh, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, uh, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So uh, here again, the testament to his life, the most important thing, verse three, is it tells us that his life as a man, as well as his rulership as a leader, a king in that time, uh, was that he was characterized by being someone in his living, as well as in the way that he led in his leadership of doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And again, uh, that's always set in contrast to the many other times we read that repeated refrain Uh, regarding evil kings that it says they did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And again, those things always go together. The way to know whether or not you are doing what is right or doing what is not right is really dependent upon whose approval you're really looking for. If you're looking to do things and you're evaluating what you do, whether it's right or wrong, from your sight and your perspective, then a lot of times you're probably not going to do what's right. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs more than once that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. That, that to a man, everything is pure in his own eyes, but the Lord even weighs the heart. In other words, sometimes we may even think that something seems right or it appears right to us and you know, we can justify it or we can rationalize. Well, I mean, according with what I see and the standards and this and that and from my perspective, there's nothing wrong with this and this seems right or it feels right or it looks right. But yet the Bible tells us that God even weighs the heart. That is, God even recognizes, okay, well, maybe that appears right outwardly, but what's the motive of your heart behind that? Or or what's the intention within of why you might do that or not do that? And uh, so, again, that ultimately is the way that we want to weigh out our decisions and our actions and really the way that we live, uh, the way that we lead, if God gives us some role of leading others, is to ultimately say, Lord, is this right in your sight? Uh, In your sight, is this right? Not in the sight of what I see and not as well in the sight of others. That's also a major flaw 
if we're always seeking the approval of other people and what well everybody else thinks it's okay and other people accept it or endorse it well look that's that's not a good measurement either uh, you know Je- jesus said woe to you jesus said woe to you when all men speak well of you <laughs> uh every nobody ever has anything to say against me and and just sometimes we find out as jesus said be careful <laughs> If nobody speaks in any way at times negative or critical, that may not be a good thing. That could be an indication that perhaps you're too much conforming to the patterns of this world and just kind of embracing that. And, or maybe you're living in the, the fear of man and you're seeking the approval of man a little bit too much. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare. And so what marked these kings as being good kings or bad kings, you know, good men or in a sense bad men from a perspective of relationship with God was uh, whose approval were they seeking and whose eyes were they seeking to do what was right or wrong and how were they determining that Uh, and it says he sought to do what was right in the sight of the Lord that's a great way to seek to live your life or to uh, really carry out your responsibilities that God has given to you in your life as you make decisions and so forth yet the Bible tells us in verse 3 that not like his father David He did everything as his father Joash had done, and he didn't take away the high places. Again, that was always an indication that uh, there was sort of a mediocrity that made its way into someone's life, uh, that they didn't remove the high places. Now, the high places, understand, we see this in the Bible, were references to locations where altars were and where worship was given. Certainly, it was a Canaanite practice where there was pagan idolatry that would take place when they came into the land. But there are occasions where Solomon and others would worship uh, and offer sacrifices to the Lord in the high places. The problem that God had with the high places is once the temple was built, God gave them a prescribed way where they were to worship God in Jerusalem at the temple with the one altar of the sacrificial system through the priesthood and according to God's prescribed way. And at that point, they were no longer to then utilize these other locations because really it was a way for them to kind of worship outside of God's prescribed manner of worship. And why was this important? Well, uh, because the heart of man oftentimes becomes inclined to other things and we need in many ways the restrictive boundaries of god's word and god's way to keep our heart in the right place and ultimately this was just a precursor and a foreshadowing that god gave a prescribed way to worship him and to approach him and ultimately that becomes most fundamentally important in jesus because jesus would ultimately say i am the way exclusive the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except by me and 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 that god is to be worshiped in spirit and in truth and that ultimately there is only one prescribed way to approach god and worship biblically and it's through his son jesus christ Uh, we can't well i mean i kind of want to take a little bit of christianity but also i kind of want to mingle some of these things together with it as well and i kind of want to i want to do things and many people that is the way they approach their spiritual lives it's sort of just a pot of stew where it's like a, a potluck dinner or I call it salad bar theology. You know, they just kind of, you know, if you and I walk up to the same salad bar, I assure you what you put on your plate and I put on my plate are probably going to be different things because you're going to pick and choose according to your liking and load up your plate and leave certain things behind and take certain things and some more in excess that you like even better than others. And, and, and look, God doesn't want us to have salad bar theology, <laughs> 
And many people want to approach God that way. Well, whatever I think and my perspective and a little bit of this and some of my past traditions and God says, no, the prescribed way. I'm God. I get to call the shots. And there's one way to worship me. And so uh, this was always an indication of a flaw or a weakness in his life. That's why it says not like his father, David. Again, David was certainly a man who was not perfect in his behavior. David made many mistakes. But one thing David did is the Bible tells us he was a man after God's own heart. Uh, There was a devotion on a heart level uh, that David had that always was just an exemplary thing as God knew that he had David's whole heart. And that's really what he wants from all of us as well. Now, verse 5 says, Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in the hand of Amaziah that he executed the servants who had murdered his father, the king. We saw this back in chapter 12, uh, that Amaziah's father was assassinated by a conspiracy and, and some men assassinated him to try and usurp the throne and eliminate him. Verse six says, but the children of the murderers, he did not execute according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, in which the Lord commanded, saying, and he, the quote here is from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. So notice one of the marks of Amaziah as a man who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, this good king and a godly man, is that he was a man of both justice and and wisdom at the same time, a man of both justice and compassion at the same time, because it was just and proper for him to execute those who were murderers, those who had assassinated his father, they were murderers. And so therefore it was justice to be able to put to death. The Bible says, if man sheds the blood of man, that by man, his blood shall be shed. That capital punishment and putting to death someone who has taken the life and value of a life of someone else created in the image of God is a a proper and appropriate thing. So he's putting to get to death these individuals who executed his father as the king. He's carrying out justice. However, notice it says that he put them to death. However, he did not execute, it says, their children uh, of the ones who were the murderers. But according to the word of God, he restrained himself in this situation. Now, understand. In that culture, in that ancient time, it was typical when you came to the throne, especially in a scenario like this, you you would execute everyone in that whole family line. A lot of times if a new king would come to power, they would execute and completely eliminate every family member of a prior dynasty or someone who tried to usurp the throne because you didn't want to leave a chance of an enemy wanting to kind of come back and lead a rebellion again. so, So you would eliminate the entire family. So that would have been what was cultural. But again, someone who is a man of God, someone who does what's right in the sight of the Lord has a perspective where they say, I don't do things the way the culture does things. I do things in accordance with what the word of God says. And the word of God said, and he knew this, Deuteronomy 24, that fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor should children be put to death for the sins of their father, but a person was to be put to death or held accountable for their own sin that that was God's established command. 
that people were personally accountable for their own sin, that someone was not to be punished for the sin of another, that a father wasn't to be punished for his son's sins, and a child, a son or a daughter, was not to be punished just because of the failures and the sins of the father and the family. And so he, knowing this, really took this approach where he said, look, that may be the way the culture does things, but I don't do things according to the culture. I do things according to the commandments of God. I live according to the scripture. I live according to the word of God as my standard. And you know what? That is another way to do what is good in the sight of the Lord and a way that really a godly person should live their life and the way that we should lead ourselves or lead others and make decisions based upon the word of God. He did not allow in the situation culture and what was the cultural norm to influence his decisions, nor did he allow her as well, really, his own emotions or personal experiences to influence what he did. Think about it. He's, what is he doing here? He's dealing with a situation with men who've murdered his father. I'd say there's a little bit of emotional connection to that. Somebody puts to death one of your family members, they murder your father. Emotions are going to run a little high there, right? There's some personal hurt. There's some things that have happened. There's some bad blood. And now he's dealing with this as a king. But notice when emotions ran high and personal hurt was involved, he used wisdom to let the truth of scripture regulate and direct his decisions and his actions. He let the word of God restrain him from just responding out of emotion or his own thoughts or his own reasoning because that could have got really off track there if he would have let that happen. You know, it is much better for all of us to live by what the word of God says rather than how the culture does things or how we feel about a situation or how our, you know, our perspective or our thought is towards something. Because look, when our emotions are connected, something's happened, we're hurt, something, we just start justifying stuff and we start rationalizing stuff and we don't want to do that. That's why you need to be in your Bible. That's why you need to read your Bible. Because every day, my thoughts, emotions, feelings, ideas, perspectives, and then the conforming power of this world would make me act really bad and do a lot of dumb stuff that would displease God and would just make a bigger mess. And I need to be in my Bible every day because the Word of God has a restraining influence. The Bible says, Psalm 19, the entrance of your Word gives light. And I'm a dark person on the inside. I don't know about you. So I need a little bit of light every day to get in there, to kind of restrain the darkness a little bit and to just keep me tempered and keep me restrained and to renew my mind so I think and respond and handle things, hopefully according to the scripture's regulation and truth of my life, rather than buying into the lies of culture or my own self-deceived feelings in given situations. Uh, verse seven tells us some of his military success it says that he had killed 10,000 Edomites in a particular battle in the Valley of Salt, and he took Selah by war, which could be a reference to the modern-day rock city of Petra, as we know it, a possible reference to that territory uh, where he defeated the Edomites in a great battle, and he called its name Jokthiel to this day. So he has great success. The Edomites were constant enemies of Israel. And so some events unfold. Second Chronicles gives way more details to the backdrop of this, but it refers to one of these great victories he had because he depended upon the Lord. 
And though initially he was approaching it the wrong way, God spoke to him about it, said, look, don't rely on the flesh, rely on me. He relies upon the Lord and God blesses and gives him success. He has a great successful battle campaign. He defeats the Edomites. He conquers some territory. But the problem is, is at a time when he's really doing well and there's some success and victory and prosperity, his heart gets lifted up in pride now. And this is always a great danger for any of us because after this victory, verse eight, look what it says. Then, that is after that victory, Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king up in Israel, saying, come, let us face one another in battle. So he, he thinks, hey, I got some momentum here. I just crushed the Edomites. So he's thinking, I might as well just keep going here. And now he goes up to the north and he basically provokes a battle with his own brethren, the, the people of Israel. Now look, the kingdom was divided at this time, uh, but even when perhaps due to sin and wrong choices, God's people may become divided, uh, it doesn't mean we need to drive the wedge further. And there are times when that happens. Barnabas, uh, Paul and Barnabas didn't see eye to eye. They split on one occasion uh, and, and kind of went in two different directions. But uh, just because we may have a division or something may cause some separation uh, doesn't mean we should keep the war going. And, and sometimes that's a, a foolish mistake we make in our own pride. And, and so here he basically now, he's, oh, hey, I beat the Edomites. I might as well get, keep the ball rolling with this fighting a battle. So now he goes up and he basically instigates a battle, a war, asking the king of Israel to come and face him in a battle. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent back word to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, a little parable here, the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon. Again, the idea of thistle, like a little bramble bush that would just blow away, tumbleweed, went and kind of provoked and, and spoke uh, sort of arrogantly to the cedar, this big, massive, strong tree that was there in Lebanon, saying to him demandingly, give your daughter to my wife. And a wild beast, he says in the story, that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. So the thistle comes to this big cedar of Lebanon, this tiny you know, little bramble bush growing around, and he's demanding, give me your daughter, and you know, making demands. And while he's in the middle of making his demands, some animal just comes and just steps on it and just crushes the whole thing. And so he's drawing this contrast. He says in light of this, verse 10, you have indeed defeated Edom. Good job. You had a victory. And your heart, notice, is lifted you up. Glory in that, he says, and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah, with you? So the king of Israel says, listen. And the king of Israel, it seems chronologically, was older, an older man at this time. Perhaps, again, Amaziah being younger and he's vibrant and he's just had success and it's kind of gone to his head a little bit. He's kind of got the, the big head syndrome going on a little bit. So he, he goes and he tries to instigate another battle here, kind of in a, a, a prideful attitude. And this little story comes back from the older king of Israel and he says, look, son, uh, you are like a little bramble bush in compared to the cedar-like stature that I have here, uh, you had a little success. So, you know, look, rejoice in that. Be excited. Your heart's lifting you up now. 
but you're going to ultimately get yourself engaged in something. You're meddling with something that is way bigger than what you can handle. And you're presumptuously forcing yourself forward way too prematurely. And he's saying it's going to result in a really bad problem for you. You're going to end up suffering some real severe loss and pain and problems in your life. So again, the picture here is after some degree of victory and success, uh, like Amaziah here, we really have to be careful of pride. Because typically a lot of times, one of the most dangerous times in our life is actually when we're kind of doing well. Maybe God's gracious to us and he blesses us or we start to have a little victory in some area or we start to maybe get used by God and the Lord's allowing us to experience a little bit of success or fruitfulness or victory and, and then we get a little lifted up in our heart and we start thinking a little bit bigger of ourselves really than we should. And kind of that big head syndrome sets in. And kind of the picture here is kind of like a, you know, as the, the king of Israel is kind of trying to humble him and talk him down from what he's doing here. Yeah, it kind of would like be the analogy of, a, let's say, a, a, you know, a midget league uh, football team here, 10 to 12-year-old peewees. And the, 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 they win the, uh, you know, Northfield Community Championship in midget league football. So they say, hey, we need to take on the NFL Super Bowl champs next week. And, and the kind of thing was like, well, listen, you, you, you did good in midget league. Be content with that. <laughs> Don't think that all of a sudden now you can come up and crush the, the best NFL team. And this is kind of the idea. And we can kind of tend to have this tendency sometimes where pride can cause us to become a little bit, we call it presumptuous. And we think a little more of ourselves, and maybe we start to push into territory that we really shouldn't be. And we, we kind of try and, you know, overstep our bounds, if you would. And we kind of force ourselves ahead and think too highly of ourselves. And we need to beware of pushing into things and meddling beyond what God intends for us. Especially maybe at the time. If God wants to lift us up and make us conquer a, a, a cedar in Lebanon, well, God can do that. David slew Goliath. But God was telling him to do that. And, and here he's kind of just in pride, pushing himself forward a little bit. And the warning is that we need to be content and patient. We don't want to be overzealous and begin to kind of thrust ourselves forward and kind of get ourselves over our heads. And, and that ultimately can bring great failure in our lives. So he says, look, be careful. Your heart's lifted you up. Don't, don't just stay at home. Be content in what God did with you. But stop trying to be more than what God's really made you to be at the moment. He says, don't meddle with trouble lest you and Judah fall together. But verse 11, Amaziah would not heed. In other words, God sent a warning shot across his bow. God tried to caution him. And God's always faithful to do that, isn't he? When we're stepping towards something we shouldn't or we're trying to meddle in something we should not get involved in, God always finds a way to kind of send a little restraining word to us. Hey, be careful. Don't do that. And some reproof or some corrective word kind of comes to humble us. But then we have the choice. And Amaziah didn't heed. He was, he was going to do this either way. Therefore, Joash, king of Israel, went out. So he and Amaziah, king of Judah, they faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. So again, the result ended up being defeat, but not just defeat for him, but all those connected to him suffered in the process because of his pride and pushing past God's warning and pushing past the rebukes to be humble. He ultimately brings defeat in his own life. 
He brings humiliation and suffering to himself and to those who are attached to him at this time. Verse 13 says, Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, the son of Joash, at Beth Shemesh, and they went to Jerusalem, and then he, he broke down, it says, the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. So that is, he destroyed 200 yards of the wall of Jerusalem there as the result of this conquering and defeat. He then takes him captive. He goes down to Jerusalem and as sort of a uh, you know retaliation type tactic. He literally destroys 200 yards of the wall surrounding Jerusalem. That's a long, that's two football fields. 200 yards, that's a big territory of destruction as the result of this. And then verse 14, he took all the gold and the silver and the articles that were found in the house of the Lord. So now he pillages the temple and the treasuries of the king's house and he took hostages and he returned back to Samaria. So notice, because he pushed forward into things he should not have pushed himself into, there were a lot of consequences to that. Because he impatiently and presumptuously pushed beyond where he should have pushed prematurely in his pride and his great desire for more and more, he ends up suffering great hurt personally. And there's tremendous loss, again, both to himself and to others. He causes suffering to other people in the process. Why? Because of his own bad decisions. And a lot of times, you know, our own bad decisions and being presumptuous and pushing forward into things that we shouldn't or meddling in things we should not meddle in or being prideful and pushing ahead even though we know we really shouldn't, a lot of times can cause us to suffer greatly consequences and it could cause others around us to suffer. People are taken hostage. The temple of God is robbed. Things that should have been used for God's good purposes are now being taken away and used in unhealthy ways. So again, just a, a good caution to us. We want to avoid doing these kind of things in our lives. Verse 15, now the rest of the acts, it says, of Jehoash, which he did in his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash rested with his fathers, was buried there in Samaria, the capital city of Israel in the north, with the kings of Israel, and then Jeroboam, his son reigned in his place. So this will now be Jeroboam the second, not Jeroboam of Nebat, who we read about often the first king in the northern part of Israel. Verse 17, And Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, he lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel. And the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. And then they brought him on horses and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah then, after Amaziah is dead, they then took, it says, Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. And he built Elath, and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his father. So we now see another change. It says now Azariah 
also known as Uzziah. You may know that name more frequently. It's a lot of times used of him in Second Chronicles. Same individual, Azariah, Uzziah, same individual. He now becomes king in the southern part of Israel, the next king over Judah. And it says, verse 23, that it was in the 15th year of Amaziah. So we kind of get taken back a little bit here, somewhat of a little bit of a flashback as, again, these kingdoms overlap. It was in the 15th year of Amaziah, to mark the time frame, that king of Judah, that Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. So that's an extensive reign, one of the longest reigns of one of the kings in the northern part of Israel, 41 years. And just by way of reference for you, this is the time frame we know as well when prophets like Hosea and Amos and Isaiah, when they were prophesying, was during the time of this particular king in Israel, Jeroboam. So it kind of gives you a little bit of a historical setting of when some of these prophets that we have in our Old Testament prophetic books were kind of ministering and speaking God's word during these times. And again, Jeroboam the second, this is verse 24, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. We read that quite often of the northern kings, the repetitious patterns of the sins of Jeroboam the first. He did, however, verse 25, restore the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according, notice, look at this, to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hepher. So there's a little reference there to Jonah the prophet that we know from the short little four-chapter Old Testament book of Jonah. We know Jonah's story. Predominantly, the Bible gives us record of the whole events where God calls him to go to Nineveh, and then, of course, he disobeys and ends up getting thrown overboard and swallowed by the great fish and, you know, barfed back out and preaches to the people of Nineveh, and there's this incredible spiritual awakening that happens. But notice, that wasn't the only thing, apparently, that Jonah did. Because here we're told that Jonah also spoke the word of the Lord in such a way during the time of Jeroboam there in the north, though he was an ungodly king. And as the result of that, it led to the restoration of the territories of Israel. Because it tells us there in verse 25 that King Jeroboam, though he was a wicked king, for 41 years he reigned, but Jeroboam was leading during a time when Jonah was prophesying, and it says he restored the territory, verse 25, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah. So that's very interesting there. Even in dark times nationally, God was still speaking through these prophets, through Jonah, through Isaiah, through Hosea and Amos. God was still giving messages to his servants to share with people even in very dark, immoral, and ungodly times in the nation. And I can't help but to say, is that not the most important time when God needs to be giving messages to his servants to speak in the lives of people? Again, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 15, a word spoken in due season, how good it is. And in some way, we don't have all the details, it was according to a word from the Lord that God gave to Jonah the prophet 
that led to this national leader, this king, though he wasn't even a good or a godly king, doing some of the restorative things he did to help the nation politically and, and economically. He restored some of the territories. These were some of the good things he did. He wasn't a good man morally, but he did some good things for the nation. And those things were connected to that he actually was hearing timely messages from good and righteous people who were around him speaking into his life as a king who were helping him carry out some things that were beneficial for the nation. Again, we want to always be open to sharing a word from the Lord like Jonah here with the people that God puts us around. Jonah had influence to kings and we to some degree have influence to people in our life who you never know. If God's giving you a word to speak in due season, look, that's a good thing. You just don't know. Maybe that word in season, that good word that God gives you to just speak into somebody's life. Maybe it's your boss who's got influence over the company and the decisions he makes could have a great effect upon a bunch of people. Or maybe it's just some person that God has you connected to and you speak a word into their life and that may bring benefit and help to other people. We need to be open if God gives us a word like Jonah here to share what God would want us to share. That may be word in season that brings great help. Verse 26 says, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter. And whether bond or free, notice there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them, notice, by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war, how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath and what belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So then Jeroboam rested with his fathers and the kings of Israel, and then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. So again, notice the Bible is holding out before us. Was this king a good and godly man? No, he wasn't. But yet God still was sovereignly superintending over the affairs of men historically and over the nation. And basically you have a reference there to this man Jeroboam of God wanting to help the people. God loved the people in the nation. His heart was moved with compassion. Verse 26 and 27 tell us that the Lord saw the affliction of the people in the nation. God was, was burdened for the people. God loves people. And so God had compassion and concern for the nation and he wanted to save the nation. But it says that, that God couldn't find anyone to help. But yet here we ultimately read that God works through an ungodly political ruler to do things for the welfare of the people in the nation that he loved and that he cared about. God can raise up, listen, God can raise up kings and rulers and use them for his sovereign purposes to help people, to do things that would be in the benefit of a nation and for a people that God greatly loves. And again, God saves here by the hand of a person that he ordains. It says God couldn't find a helper, but verse 27 says, but God saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, who was God's chosen vessel to do this. And to me, it's, it's a good picture here as well. What a wonderful illustration. You know, Jesus said, lo, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. 
And all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, oftentimes we see different reflections and indications of the work of God and the work of Christ and what he would do for us. And as I look at this, I see a picture here where, again, God looks upon the world just like in this situation. God looks upon the world in its affliction and its suffering and pain because of the sins and the problems that sin causes in a nation. And God's heart is moved with compassion as God's heart was moved with compassion here. And God looks and he realizes there's nobody to help humanity. There's no helper. There's no one on the earth. They can't help themselves. And God's heart is moved with compassion. So what does God do? God says, I want to help them. I want to save them. And God doesn't raise up Jeroboam. God sends Jesus as the helper. And God saves us by the hand of Jesus. And by the work of Jesus, God sends us a deliverer and someone to be the greatest helper that we all need in all of our lives for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. And again, God in a picture here, I think in some ways gives us reminder of that here in our passage. Well, chapter 15 says it was then in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king up in Israel, that Azariah, again, this is Uzziah, who we read in the last chapter. We now get some reference to his uh, kind of time as a ruler. We're going back to the southern kingdom of Judah now. And he, look what verse 2 tells us, Uzziah or Azariah, he became king when he was 16 years old. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. 52 years. That for many people would be the entirety of their lifespan. Imagine living out your entire life with the same national leader your whole life long. I mean, we get excited because every four years we can't wait to move the next person or change. I mean, 52 years. The same person was ruling as a king and a monarch as a national leader. The good thing we're going to see is that Uzziah, or Azariah as he's known, was actually one of the good and better kings of the southern kingdom. So that, that was a good deal. For 52 years, they didn't get one of the wicked kings. They actually got one of the good kings. And again, this, again, 16 years old, he comes to the throne. And he becomes one of the best kings in Judah's history. 16 years old. I, I love to look at this because it's just a constant reminder to me of how the Lord can just, you know, take and use the heart, the life of a young person. A, imagine a 16-year-old and he becomes the king of a nation. But his heart was inclined towards God. He had a heart for the Lord and he was one of the best and godliest kings. Again, God can use a young person. God help us to ever despise his ability to work through the heart of a young person that's inclined toward him, that's willing to be usable. We get much more recorded of Azariah or Uzziah in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 26 that tells us that he was a young man who sought the Lord. It says that as long as he sought the Lord, Second Chronicles 26 says, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. And it says there in chapter 26 of 2 Chronicles that God helped him. And he was a very successful king militarily, politically. He expanded the territory of the nation. He brought great economic blessing to the people. He restored many things that had been damaged and destroyed. And again, why? Because he sought the Lord. Oh, he's only 16. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to do a lot more at 16 years old as a man who seeks the Lord than somebody who's 36 years old who doesn't seek the Lord. 
you give me a 16-year-old who loves Jesus and is a heart inclined after God and who genuinely has a relationship with God and seeks God and serves God and wants to do what's right in the eyes of God, I'll take a 16-year-old like that any day before a supposedly wise, mature, trained, and experienced 30-year-old, 40-year-old, 50-year-old who has no devotional life and has a very dispassionate heart towards God. Give me a young person on fire for the Lord. (laughs) That's a wonderful thing. And here this 16-year-old young man who just loved the Lord now becomes king and he becomes one of the best kings in Israel's history. Again, verse 3, that phrase we read earlier, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. There's an indication. That's how the good kings remark. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was a 16-year-old young man that said, you know what, I'm not going to do what's right in my sight and I'm not going to do what's right in the sight of the culture and anyone else around me. I'm, God, what's right in your sight? That's, that's a good way to live life and a good way to make decisions. That's why he made good decisions even as a teenager because he said, Lord, is this right in your sight? Is this right before you? And that's what kept him in the path that he was on because he sought the Lord to know if what he did was right in God's sight and he had God's approval in his life. Except, verse 4 again, that one of the weaknesses of many of these good kings, they did not completely remove the high places, they permitted some of these things to still exist. Now, verse 5 almost seems like a, a kind of a, a stark contrast all of a sudden. It says, Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house. Again, lepers had typically to be separated from the people. It caused isolation. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people over the land. So a reference to how his son Jotham becomes a co-regent with him for a time once he contracts this leprosy. Now, verse 5 almost seems like this startling contrast. Wait a minute, he's good godly king. Second Chronicles uh, uh, 26 describes all this great stuff about him in his heart, and he, God helps him, and he's seeking God, and he's prospering with God's hand upon his life. And now all of a sudden, verse 5, whoa, the Lord strikes him with leprosy. <laughs> what does this guy do? Well, this was at the end of his life. Unfortunately, Uzziah was one of those characters we have in the Bible who lived well, he ran well, but he didn't finish good. He didn't finish strong. And at the end of his life, he wasn't a very good finisher. In fact, let me just read you a section from 2 Chronicles 26 just briefly, which gives a little bit of insight to what happened here. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, in verse uh, 16, this is regarding Uzziah. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord your God. And then Uzziah became furious. And he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead. God struck him with leprosy before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and the priests looked at him. And there on his forehead, he was leprous. So they thrust him out of the place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him and then King Uzziah was a leper the Bible says until the day of his death 
He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And then Jotham, his son, became king and started ruling in his place. So again, what happens? The Bible says there came a time where as he became this successful, prosperous king, that as he became strong, unfortunately, he let that go to his heart and go to his head. And when he became strong, he started to become presumptuous, kind of same thing we seeing played out here again, the thematic thing the Holy Spirit seems to have in front of us here in this text. And on occasion, he chose to go into the house of the Lord to offer incense and really to do the work of the priests. And he was not called to do that. He was a king. Only the priests were to be the ones to go in and do the work in the temple of God. And he was pushing past boundaries he shouldn't have. Now, in God's design of things, God purposely designed things in the Old Testament system whereby no man could be a priest and a prophet and a king simultaneously. That wouldn't have been good for anybody. And the other reason was because only Jesus would be prophet, priest, and king simultaneously as he was the complete perfect fulfillment of all those things. So no man could share all those roles. God had them separated. The power kind of distributed in some ways, almost like we've done with government to a degree. And God knew that men couldn't handle that and it, it, would, it would pervert the type of Christ that God ultimately would bring about. Well, Uzziah began to get big and strong and powerful, so he decided, well, I, should, I want to go in and do what the priests do. And so one day he tried to push into the temple and begin to do that, and the priests withstood him. They didn't care if he was a king. They said, look, king, what are you doing? You're violating the word of God and the ways of God. And thankfully, godly men aren't even intimidated by kings. And so they, st they tried to stop. What are you doing? You're... And, and he got angry at them. I'm the king. Who are you? And he tried to push past them. And God ultimately said, um, I'm the king. And now you have leprosy. And he received a leprous curse from the Lord and no longer was he allowed not only to do a lot of things he did, but he was cut off from the temple of the Lord. Leprosy in the Bible, of course, is always a picture and a type of sin. And so he was struck with leprosy for what he was doing and his prideful arrogance. And the rest of his life, he kind of had to live isolated as the result of that prideful and, and arrogant attitude and not being willing to humble himself and listen to counsel in his life, it led to his own downfall and he ended up living in an isolated house, again, because of the leprosy. And leprosy, a type of sin, and notice, leprosy led to isolation. And you know what? That's what sin always does. Sin always leads to isolation. Sin always leads to separation. The Bible says God's ear is not short that he cannot hear, nor is his arm short that he cannot save. Your sins have separated you from your God. Sin causes separation. Sin caused Adam in the Garden of Eden to do what? He was in fellowship with God, harmony with God, and then all of a sudden, when he knew he sinned, and he sensed that, what did he do? He separated himself from fellowship with God. And so he went hiding and isolating, and God had to go track him down. Remember, Adam, where are you? Because it led to isolation. And look, that is always the effect of sin. Sin causes separation between a person and God, and sin causes separation between human relationships as well. We become separated from others because sin ruins relationships. And it causes us to become cut off from other people. It's one of the unfortunate consequences of what sin does in our lives. 
whether it's pride or whatever it may be, sin causes separation, it damages relationships, and oftentimes thrusts us into isolation. And I'll tell you this too, a lot of times, since we're talking about sin and isolation, a lot of times when someone begins to isolate themselves, I'm just telling you this from 20 years of senior pastoral ministry, I can't tell you that the high percentage of times when I have seen that when someone begins to isolate themselves, there's some sin starting to creep into their life and they're starting to do things they shouldn't do. Proverbs 18 says that he who isolates himself rages against all wise counsel and seeks his own harm. But when you see somebody starting to pull back and isolate themselves, that's when you need to go after them. If you find yourself starting to isolate and kind of you want to, you know, why? What, what do you, God's called us to be in community. We need community. We need the help. Isolation is, look, that's one of the devil's playgrounds because that's where he manipulates the mind and he can generate more temptation and cause us to begin to just, you know, justify, well, you know, nobody's watching and, and there's no accountability. Beware of that. And here, this sinful effect in his life caused isolation for him and caused him to really live the rest of his life suffering under these very things as a really unfortunate result. Look, here's the good news. God's a reconciler. That God is a reconciler. And and, and though we have made a mess and sin causes isolation and separation, God's in the business of reconciliation. God's reconciled us to himself, the Bible says, through his son, Jesus Christ. God came after us and he reconciled us back to Jesus. The only way a person is not reconciled to God is if they don't want to be reconciled to God. Because God made every avenue available freely for a person to be reconciled. Look, that's what we in many ways celebrate uh, at Christmas. We're celebrating that God made a way to reconcile us as sinful people back to himself so that we could be in relationship with the Lord. Why don't we close off there? It's probably a fitting spot.